What's up, everyone? I'm Andrew Steinwald, and this is Zima Red. On this show, we speak with the users, founders, and creatives that are diving into the world of unique digital assets, also called non-fungible tokens. My guest today is Spidey Monkey, a master builder and realist. Incredibly technically talented, Spidey Monkey has constructed a number of tools, resources, and even games for the non-fungible token space. Our conversation took us all over, but one thing that we kept coming back to was just how early we genuinely are. Being a perpetual optimist, it was great to speak with someone who has a more realistic view on today's ecosystem, not guesstimating what the ecosystem will look like five years down the line. Still, Spidey Monkey is an NFT diehard and staunch supporter of the space. He challenges all of us to step up our game. And when someone is technically gifted as Spidey Monkey says that, we should all listen. Please enjoy my conversation with Spidey Monkey. Spidey Monkey, thank you so, so much for coming on today. Really excited to talk to you. But first things first, I'd love to know about your name. How did you get the name Spidey Monkey? Yeah, Andrew. Yeah, so Spidey Monkey is a kind of online monker I created back, I think, in 2010, 2011. And it was for um, Interactive Investors uh, Stock Trading Forum. Back then, I was invested in a lot of uh, oil companies. Yeah, I just kind of you know, create an online account with interactive investors. And that was when I kind of made my first kind of online project, which was a a net asset value calculator for oil companies. Yeah, I think at the time I was like in the top 100 uh, people on the forum. And um, yeah, I just kind of stuck with Spidey Monkey then ever, ever since. Let's talk about your, a little bit about your background, how you got started in crypto, and then how you got involved with non-fungible tokens. Yeah, I was working in a large enterprise and we had a blockchain team. This was like early 2017. I just got chatting with some of the Ethereum developers and, you know, they were telling me about smart contracts. And, you know, I really liked the the idea behind smart contracts. And I'd been following Ethereum for a while and, you know, I was listed on Coinbase and uh, read a few articles about Ethereum saying that, you know, it's its potential is huge right so and this is back when ethereum was like 12 dollars. yeah so that that year i just kind of i was like i got my my annual bonus and i just threw the whole lot into ethereum and uh gollum yeah the rest is kind of history like it basically mooned from there you know i really got kind of interested in the whole space that's kind of how i got started and then uh, i didn't really get into non-fungible tokens until you know crypto kitties kind of came around that was my my first dabble um basically bought like a couple of kitties when the price was like crazy like a couple of each uh, for some of the cats that are now worthless so it was a kind of a bittersweet entry into the thing but when when the market is hyped you know that's when you get the the retail investors kind of coming in so uh learned my lesson pretty early which was great like i didn't i didn't spend too much maybe two each on on a couple of cats did a bit of breeding and like transaction prices were astronomical so like if you wanted to breed a cat it might cost you like five ten dollars yeah so that, that was pretty much the first uh decentralized application i got involved in and it wasn't really until um, Decentraland got listed on Polynex that I actually jumped in and got involved with um, with virtual worlds and metaverse stuff. Like my involvement with Crypto Kitties was pretty minimal, but then with Decentraland, uh, you know, being able to purchase land and get involved um, was really cool. Yeah, like I've always worked in augmented reality and VR. Um, you know, something I was really passionate about. Yeah, Decentraland just always perked my interest, but it wasn't until they got listed on Polynex that I could actually get my hands on some mana and purchase my first bit of digital land. You did mention that when you you were working at a company 
and they wanted to implement some sort of blockchain and you you were speaking to some Ethereum developers and that's kind of how you how you first found out about Ethereum? Well, I, I knew about Ethereum before that, but I hadn't really dived deep into why a smart contract is so useful. So, you know, talking with the blockchain developers, that kind of gave me the understanding of, okay, it's basically like a an escrow, right? Like you can have any sort of payout calculation that's baked into the smart contract. So, you know, for like a mortgage and things like that. I mean, I don't want you to reveal too much, but was your company trying to implement Ethereum into their business? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, like it was a part of the R&D division that I worked in and, you know, they created some stuff for basically putting um, educational certifications on the blockchain. You know, and at the time when they started the project, it was... Um, you know, like $12 for an Ethereum. So the cost of transactions were like, you know, sub cent. But then as, you know, the year progressed, the, the cost of running the system had ballooned, you know, like a hundred X. It kind of became like a non-trivial overhead cost for the project to work. And because it's with education, you know, education is historically very cash cash light, right? Let's say <laughs> like they don't have a lot of money. You know, students just want stuff for free. So yeah, like it, it was just kind of an interesting, you know, project that it looked great on on the outset, but then you know as transaction costs increased, it kind of killed the the potential. You're kind of basically seeing the the usability of the platform decrease as the price increases, and that kind of goes into the next question, which is what are your views in general about cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and Ethereum? Yeah, so I've got a kind of contrarian view on on Ethereum. You know, like like Bitcoin, I see I see as um, a new gold because it is a, a store of value that increases over time. You know, like you can probably buy the same amount of stuff with an ounce of gold now that you could say a hundred years ago, right? Like an ounce of gold a hundred years ago might have bought you a nice suit, you know, a dinner, and maybe you know some other some other item. And nowadays, you know, when it's at 1500 you can probably buy a decent suit you know and a few other things with an ounce of gold so you know an ounce of gold has kind of maintained its purchasing power uh, throughout history and you know, obviously it's it's been volatile as well but i think what's interesting about it is that you know a dollar back then would have bought you a hell of a lot more than a dollar now so i see bitcoin being a similar situation you know so bitcoin is kind of deflationary fiat is inflationary and, you know, it's required as economics that, you know, fiat inflates, right? Like it's kind of built into the system. That's how they they manage, uh, you know, economics, right? They can print more money, they can increase interest rates. And it's all like a, a kind of a manipulation by the government to figure out how they can actually value their fiat money, right? Uh, you know, if you want to pay off some sovereign debt, just print a load of money and, and pay it off, um, which devalues the, you know, the fiat currency for the for the country. So with Bitcoin, I see it as a store of value and also like a, a hedge against macroeconomic stuff and socioeconomic uh, challenges. You know, even with the stuff happening in Iran now, you know, you see oil is spiking and dollars falling and there's all these kind of macroeconomic impacts. But when you look at Bitcoin, like Bitcoin doesn't care. You know, it's an asymmetric asset class that, you know, is it's a safe haven from pretty much everything. Right, like it's it's extremely volatile, but at the same time, it's you know year on year, it's always increased in value. You know, I see Bitcoin as a very key part of the whole ecosystem, but then I spend Ethereum day to day, right? Like you know, I pay transaction fees, I purchase items, I you know, I use it like my 
my currency, right? So like, you know, if, if I if I looked at it, I'd be like, hey, in my safe, I've got some gold, right? That's my Bitcoin. But in my wallet, I've got some dollars, and that's my Ethereum. And, and that's kind of how I see the two. So, you know, if, if Ethereum was to inflate in price massively, then it would actually decrease the value of the network, I feel. So I think there's a kind of a sweet spot where Ethereum needs to be for it to actually be something that people use and people want to use. You know, like if, if you're entering the NFT space and something's priced at, you know, 0.1 Ethereum, and Ethereum's a hundred dollars. It's like, oh, it's ten bucks. You know, I can do that. But if Ethereum was a thousand dollars, you might be less likely to purchase. You know, that point one Ethereum item. So you know, I, I can I can see the pros and cons of speculating in Ethereum, but I definitely believe that it's it's better to you know store your funds in Bitcoin as and when you need it, change it into Ethereum. You know, obviously you should have a, a core Ethereum holding to, you know, avoid price spikes and stuff when you need to use it. But but that's just kind of my, my outlook on it. You're thinking that Ethereum, if it's priced at, I don't know, let, let's just call it a, a lower price, let's say a hundred bucks, you think that's much more advantageous for the ecosystem as a whole versus if it's at a thousand because of that, that price impact. It's a really good point because everything's priced in Ethereum. Yeah. And as well as that, like if, if Ethereum goes up very high, you know, projects will move to Ethereum Classic, right? Because the transaction fees will be lowered and, you know, the network fees will be lower and the overall cost of ownership of a system that consumes Ethereum. So like if you look at Tether, for instance, so Tether recently moved to the Ethereum network. They're probably the biggest spender of Ethereum of all, right? I think them and um, one of the casinos uh, do a lot of transactions. They're driving up the price of transactions for retail users. So, you know, when I go in and it's like, hey, you know, the network's slow, pay like, you know, 10 to 20 times the normal transaction fee to get it done quickly. That actually kills a lot of games. So like if you look at Zero X Universe, for instance, people won't actually play the game when Ethereum transaction fees are high. And when they drop low, they'll all go in and they'll start playing it again. If the transaction fee, you know, has an, a relationship with the usage of the platform, then that's when people will automatically, you know, out of necessity, move to a different platform. People are using side chains now, like Loom and Plasma Chain, in order to avoid, you know, this transaction fee issue. But then you also have Ethereum Classic, which is, you know, now pretty much you know feature parity with ethereum so that you can migrate your contract over to ethereum classic and you know ethereum classic is like four dollars so already you're like you know 50 times cheaper to use ethereum classic than ethereum you know and i I do believe that you know multi-chain spreading the load so that's kind of what the lightning network does and atomic swaps it enables you to you know transfer bitcoin over litecoin's network or you know make a transaction on ethereum classic instead of ethereum and this kind of spreading of the load i think is something you know, that's good for the ecosystem. But yeah, like if Ethereum went too high, a lot of the transactions would actually move away from it. So I think I'm going to push back a little bit on that because I think if Ethereum Classic, you know, the fees are already much higher on Ethereum. So I think if people really cared about fees, they would have already moved to something like EOS or to something like uh, Ethereum Classic, as you point out. But I think the network effects are too strong now on Ethereum. They just have, they're so much farther ahead than other chains and the community and the network is there that people just gravitate towards that regardless. So I don't I don't foresee, you know, EOS Knights, for example, they switched over to Ethereum recently. I think their new Ethereum-based game is called Knight Story, I think. You see these people leaving those other chains, the cheaper chains that are free and instant in some cases, like EOS or whatever, but they're going to this expensive place where everyone's at. And, and I think that uh, people prefer 
to be on one interconnected financial system, I, I suppose, with Ethereum, and all with each other and all interoperable, so to speak, versus on EOS and uh, Ethereum Classic, even though it's much cheaper. Yeah, like there, the, there definitely is a network effect, right? You know, I, I think that kind of goes without saying. But you know, if if Ethereum and Ethereum Classic are interoperable in all ways, then that just increases the size of the Ethereum network, right? So, like you know, Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin don't really have like interoperability because of the block size difference. But Ethereum Classic and Ethereum, they're now fully interoperable. Like Ethereum Classic basically implemented most of the EIPs that Ethereum had, so that they would be interoperable. You know, I would see it as an extension to Ethereum that allows um, you know transactions basically to be rerouted through. Like a, it's kind of like a, you know, floodgate, right? It's like, oh, you know, we got way too many transactions in the behind the the Ethereum dam. Uh, let's just like push them through Ethereum Classic and and get them out of the way. Where do you move your entire project over to Ethereum Classic, or you know, just reroute your transactions through it? You know, I think in the future we'll see a lot more of this kind of instead of side chain offloading, you'll actually be able to use multi chain routing. So, you know, like there's been cases where they they used, I think it was Vertcoin to send uh, Ethereum. And then, you know, they had like a special algorithm that would basically wrap the Ethereum transaction into it and then pass it through their chain and then unwrap it and put it back. Yeah, like it, there's definitely a lot of scaling ways. Side chains are definitely, you know, probably the most uh, effective at the moment um but we're still very early days like i'd definitely like to see ethereum and ethereum classic you know come together and actually think of themselves as a sister change right so you think it's going to be something more akin to those chains working together or you think we'll see something like the interoperability chains like a uh, polka dot and cosmos or you know there's other ones that they say that hey we are this one chain, but if you build your, your project on us, you're, it's interoperable between all these other, I, I, I don't know what they, I think they, in Cosmos, they call them. Um, Internet of Chains. Yeah, yeah, Internet of Chains and Polkadot, I think it's something similar to that, but um, they're, they're, that's what they're basically, their whole pitch is. Do you think that we'll see that first, or do you think we'll see Ethereum and Ethereum Classic working closer together first? Yeah, I think like anytime you create a new project and you try to to wrap somebody else's project, you know, you just kind of become a middleman. Um, but I think when, you know, when the original project says, hey, you know, we now support, you know, transactions through Ethereum Classic, you know, all that really does is it says, hey, our, you know, our network capacity has now increased, right? Like we've got more miners, we've got more developers, we've got, you know, all these extra things that come with collaboration. But yeah, I think I think these Polkadot and, and Cosmos stuff is a little bit like it, it's a hard sell right like you know you, you have to convince somebody why they should use you and why they should buy your token and you know that's like the the biggest challenge you have there is doing nothing right so somebody that's already built something on ethereum like they have to do nothing to stay there whereas if they want to move to something else they have to do something and it's really that that cost of movement whereas if you make it transparent to the user and you say hey next time you send an ethereum transaction it might actually get executed on ethereum classic then there's there's no cost of moving um but there's increased value lowered transaction fees and it makes it you know less viable to move away from ethereum classic if you can keep fees low you know i think they're at like seven transactions per second or something now or maybe 15 i forget i'm glad you brought that up because i've never i've never even heard of anyone even suggesting that so that's really 
interesting. That would be interesting if, to see if we actually do move towards a system like that. Well, what's really interesting is Ethereum Classic is actually like Bitcoin, right? Like it is the original chain. Um, you know, Bitcoin Cash, Bitcoin SV, and all those other um, like forks are just that they're forks. But Ethereum Classic is actually the original, and Ethereum is the fork. I think if something is the original, it doesn't necessarily give it more importance or it should be trusted more, I guess. I think I think the split between Ethereum and Ethereum Classic was like for a good reason. But, but I, I do understand the point of being totally immutable. Like Ethereum Classic said, hey, we're going to not change anything. This is kind of your doing. But yeah, I, I don't know. There's, there's pros and cons to, to each. But I, I think that the network has kind of decided that Ethereum, the fork, the, the, the Ethereum that we know as Ethereum today, that is kind of the one that most people will use and implement. All right, moving on. What attracts you to NFTs and why do you buy NFTs? Is it for uh, the look of them? Is it for the return? Or w- what is it that attracts you to these assets? And primarily access to the platforms, right? So, you know, if you want to build something in the central land or crypto voxels, you need to own a bit of land to actually deploy it to the world. So, you know, that was kind of my number one thing. Like when I first joined the central land, you know, people were like, hey, I can give you access to my land. You can, you know, you can bl- deploy your work there. And I'm like, well, I have no interest in that, right? Like, I, I've only got interest in investing my time and effort if I'm the owner, right? So, you know, that, that was, that has always been a guiding principle for me. Like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to put time and effort into something that I don't have a vested interest in. You know, I think I spent over a year working on the central land and built a DCL map, which has since shut down, but, um, I'm thinking of bringing it back, and basically, uh, you know, I, I put in hundreds of hours of of my time, you know, in the evenings and weekends, building things to add value to the project, you know. And then I think it was back in like April or March last year, I was just frustrated that they they never launched, you know, and they they broke a lot of the, the code I wrote, uh, which was unfortunate. Hundreds of hours of development time was kind of lost, so I decided to uh, to check out uh, CryptoVoxels, and I really liked CryptoVoxels. Like it was already open, you know, the world was there, you know, everything was launched. You know, there wasn't really any like coding required, so there wasn't like any breaking changes uh, possible. So I just went in and started kind of hacking around and built a Chrome extension for it, and you know that kind of sucked me deeper into the rabbit hole. You know, I just I really love the communities in these projects. Like the Central has a great community, and so does uh, CryptoVoxels. But yeah, I think you know maybe when these tokens are sold, they shouldn't be sold before they're usable, right? And and I th- I think that was probably one of the things I learned. It's like you know buying on speculation before something's actually started or released is quite risky because you know like you've seen other projects just shut down out of nowhere like uh, i remember a friend of mine bought a crypto celebrity and i think he paid like you know five or ten eat for it when eat was pretty high you know a couple of weeks later they just shut down and he got the hot potato (laughs) so it seems like you're not going at this at the point of an investor you're kind of kind of a builder and kind of seeing hey what can i hack together and build something interesting on these platforms. But you're not looking for the return. You're, you're kind of just seeing what you can build. That's cool. Yeah, like like I definitely want return because, you know, in order to increase how much you own, you do need to have some sort of um, profit taking, right? You know, in the central land, I bought and sold a few 
properties so that I could expand in a different area, right? Like I started off with parcels all around the map. And then, you know, as more information got released, I realized that to build higher, I needed a bigger estate. So then I started trying to, you know, make a little profit on those isolated parcels and consolidate them into a single estate, you know? So now like I have a three by three, nine parcel estate. And, you know, that wouldn't have been possible if it wasn't for you know, making a little bit of profit on each of the individual parcels that I had purchased previously. You mentioned community, and I think that community is always brought up whenever NFTs are brought up. I think that's a super interesting subject because the community in crypto trading is big, but it's not nearly as big and fanatical as NFTs. Well, you know, uh, crypto trading has larger actual size of people interested in it, but the people the people that are fanatical about NFTs are really, really into them. So why is it that people are so into it? Why is it the community is such an important aspect? And why are they, these people so into it? Yeah, like, I, I don't think I ever really joined any communities for, like, crypto trading. Like, I'd definitely been in a, a different group for different tokens. But, like, like it wasn't it wasn't super involved. Like, what can you do? You can, like, oh, it's going to moon. You know, that's that's about the height of what you can say, right? You know, I do some technical analysis, but that's a, that's about the height of it. Whereas with the NFT space, you know, you're building with people's SDKs, you know, using their APIs, building third-party tools. You know, like, I remember using a Chrome extension for CryptoKitties that would actually, like, you know, show you all the relevant information on their website because their website didn't show a lot of the information you needed. And then this Chrome extension, you know, added all that extra kind of chain data into the view. I think that's what's really cool about the whole crypto space is that it, it's so decentralized. There's people all around the world building like tools and third party stuff. And and that's really where I see the, you know, the network effect. It's, it's you know, it's, it's growing rapidly, but like we're still very early. You know, I think there's like half a million Bitcoin wallets with like over 0.1 Bitcoin or something. You know, half a million out of seven billion, like that's pretty tiny. Um, and then if you look at the NFT space, you know, how many how many crypto wallets or just Ethereum wallets have NFTs in them? Like it's probably like less than one percent. Do you know what I mean? So if people with Ethereum wallets is like, you know, point zero zero one percent of the world's population, and then a hundred of those have, you know, NFTs, like we're still at the very early stages. Just to give a guesstimate, would you would you say that a hundred thousand people in the world have NFTs or do you think it's higher than that or lower? I think it'd be lower. Like there there might be a load of airdropped stuff around. You know, like it's definitely easier to create NFTs now. Like I know I've seen a project where they they basically just NFT create created NFTs from Creative Commons images. So, you know, there's like free images on the web that anybody can use. And then they created like a whole NFT project that basically sold those, you know, open source images. So like there, there's really no limit to how many NFTs can be out there or who people can send them to. Yeah, that project that you mentioned seems that seems a little bit kind of spammy, I would say. Yeah, but at the same time, like it's allowed, right? Like I could go in and I could create the same project and there's no issue, right? Like it's open source imagery. So, right. you know, and, and that kind of brings up another issue with, with the NFT space. It's like, how do you prove that you own the original artwork, you know? And it, like, if I look at super rare, you know, a lot of the stuff I see there is like somebody else's work 
that's like you got a filter on it or you know they cut and pasted like somebody's face and you know did something else or you know they like what i really like is when people do like you know their own art right like you know that's that's the ultimate right like you know you're 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 not kind of using somebody else's work to create what you're doing i like to be able to view an artist's actual uh, address from my understanding with super rare is that it's difficult to figure out I don't know, let's say Andrew. Andrew's an artist, and I want to figure out his exact contract address to make sure that he's minting those tokens. But I think because I think they're being minted through Super Rare, so which is fine. But I like the the artists themselves to mint their token them, themselves to have their own address. And on top of that, as you mentioned, that not only um, is that difficult to find on platforms like Super Rare, but it's also yeah they can take some image from the internet and just add a filter and then say it's it's theirs. It's better to see an artist make the actual work and then. Uh, be able to actually follow their contract address. But going off of that, what are some red flags for NFT projects? I, I think people that pre-sale before they have a like an actual product is is always risky. You know, like I know F1 Delta time like sold like a hundred thousand dollar car, but like the person that bought it can't do anything with it. <laughs> do you know what I mean? So it's like, what what exactly can I do with this car? Like is it you know like it's it's just a complete unknown. How how do you value an item that you don't know what it's used for? And I, I think that's a big challenge. That sale specifically was a bit uh, excessive for something that hasn't launched, I would say. But also, if you look at just our you know the non crypto world, there's tons of people that do kickstarters or like pre sales of all sorts of different stuff. And and you know sometimes they launch successfully, sometimes they don't. It is in a sense a red flag, but at the same time. People do it in the quote unquote real world and it's like a non-issue. So, but I can see how obviously you can sell stuff, something and not deliver and that would be a major issue. But before this talk, we were talking about wash trading and I'd like to talk to you about that because I, I do believe that there is some issues with wash trading in the NFT space, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, like I, I haven't really done any chain analysis on it. Uh, maybe it's something I could do at some point. But um, you know what? What you'll see is very strange kind of buying behavior in projects. Where, like, let let's say I buy like something, you know, some NFT project for like one Ethereum. You know, then I I try to list it for say a hundred Ethereum. Like, if somebody goes in to buy that NFT, they're going to look at the history and they're like, this person bought it for one Ethereum. I'm not going to give them 100x gains, right? But if you go in and, you know, you create like several other wallets and you create some trading history on your on your NFT and it's like, you know, it was bought for one, it was sold for three, and then it was it was bought then again for like five and then it was like 15 and then 30, you know, and then 60 and now it's listed for 100, you know, people be like, okay, so... You know, it went from 60 to 100. So, like, I'm only, you know, increasing it by, you know, 20, 40, whatever percent above its previous price. And and that that's kind of a mentality thing in people's heads where they're like, the last person bought it for this, so I'm only paying X percent more um, versus, you know, paying, you know, 100 times the price of the original. This also brings it up in the, uh, the trade uh, volume kind of ranks. So, like, OpenSea ranking or non-fungible ranking, all it looks at is, um, you know, purchases, right? So, you know, if somebody bought it here, you know, and sold it there, then, you know, that'll add to the transaction volume. And then you also have, it's, it's not really wash trading, but there's there's definitely bot trading going on. So, you know, when, when items are below a certain threshold, bots will buy them and then relist them above that threshold. 
that below and above threshold might only be five or ten percent but what it does is it creates this artificial floor in a project's um nfts let's say for instance you know on crypto kitties like anytime i see a crypto kitty listed under one each i buy it and then i list it for like 1.1 each that means that any new investor coming into crypto kitties has to purchase at 1.1 each because i automatically buy everything under an each so that there's there's literally no available supply and that can that can help large investors you know maintain a kind of a minimum value definitely think i've seen this in in a lot of different projects these obviously seem like issues in some sense but in another sense it's kind of just it is kind of the market basically doing what markets do kind of people figuring out how to get ahead in a sense or, or kind of work something to their advantage which is kind of what markets do and you think that that's okay or not okay or kind of that's just how it is i think the primary issue is the the supply amount right like if if somebody's doing it in forex you know where they're like buying you know their own currency under a certain threshold you know and that props up the value of their currency that's like a necessity right like to run a country right like you need to have uh, forex stability um you know and you've seen a lot of countries do this but the liquidity and the supply in the forex market like you know there's trillions of dollars traded like you know every hour like it's just insane the volume of forex that's traded but if you look at the nft space like you know you might have a project with you know, 100,000 tokens, that's a much easier to manipulate market, right? Like you could manipulate that market, you know, depending on the average price for, for very little, you know, and and, and it also, it, it makes it harder for new investors to come in, right? Like, like uh, that's one of the things I love about CryptoVoxels is, you know, uh, Ben Nolan, he releases like cheap parcels regularly right rather than like saying hey look here's all the parcels you know and letting some some whale come in and like basically buy them all up you know he lists them like very slowly you know once a week kind of drip feeds a couple of parcels and and that's allowed our token holder count to grow if he was to list every other parcel all in one go like you run the risk of of every parcel getting owned by the same person and then just relisting them at, at a higher price Speaking of CryptoVoxels, what projects besides CryptoVoxels and Decentraland are you involved in? And also, why do you like those projects? I actually have my own uh, NFT project called CryptoMorphs. I actually created it because I, I really like psychedelic art, and I couldn't find any psychedelic art um, in the NFT space. And I wanted to put up some cool psychedelic art inside CryptoVoxels. And yeah, I was like, okay, I'll just, you know, make my own. So, you know, spend spend a couple of months researching like how to do, you know, animations and generative art and also looking into OpenSea, how to list your own stuff and create a metadata API. So, you know, I spent a couple of months doing that and I released the first series of like uh, 42 cryptomorphs and each one is unique, you know, no duplicates. And um, yeah, it was a really cool project. Like, you know, I definitely put more effort into it than I then I got back in value by selling them. But I also didn't sell very many. Like I, I just couldn't let go of some of them. Like I, I became attached to my own artwork. I kept quite a lot of my favorites. Um, but I, I ended up selling a few that I didn't want to sell because, you know, as people I knew were like, oh, I really want this one. And I was like, okay, I'll, I'll list it. Yeah, like it, it was a really interesting project. Uh, and then I, I did a partnership with Chain Guardians. So 
cryptomorphs we created uh, magic items so using the seven chakras we basically have like you know fire water air wind light sound psychic and um, they're going to be in-game items that can help you during battles to like increase your magic powers for those elements Um, so that was a really cool project like uh, i've been working with the chain guardians team uh, on a few other things as well uh, they recently took over uh, Ethereumon uh, and rebranded it and called it Ethermon. Basically, um, you know, took all the assets from the team that shut down and you know relaunched it, uh, which was great to see. You know, I, I don't know if I've seen that in the NFT space before, where you know somebody shuts it down and then somebody else starts it back up. But that's the beauty of blockchain, right? Like it's it's something that's. Uh, possible to do yeah i've been helping chain guardians and etherman out with some kind of development tasks and just kind of general advisory but i haven't really been super involved in many other projects like i i looked at somnium space for a while but like it doesn't work on mac so i couldn't actually use it I think Sandbox was another one. I like the idea of Sandbox, and I think, you know, their plan is great. But, like, they couldn't get their countdown timer to work, and that kind of was a red flag. <laughs> Going back to CryptoVoxels and Decentraland, because that kind of ties into the metaverse as a whole. Do you have any thoughts on the metaverse that can include anything from virtual reality to web-based programs to just kind of, like, future haptic suits and stuff like that? Yeah, yeah, like uh, actually at Christmas there, I brought my Oculus Quest back, uh, back home and showed it to you know my friends and family, and I think nearly every one of them was like, okay, I'm gonna buy one. A few people were like, oh, I've tried it before, made me feel sick, I don't want to try it, and I was like, no, no, you got you got to try this. This is different, you know. No, nobody felt sick. Everybody, you know, really enjoyed it. So I think the Oculus Quest has been kind of a an iPhone moment for VR, you know, like all the feature phones and snake and shitty games that we had in our phone. Like we, we enjoyed them and we played them, but like now we're able to play like, you know, console quality games on our phones. And I think, you know, when the iPhone first came out, it still wasn't a great device, right? Like, but it, it supported JavaScript and it supported touch. And those two features alone were the kind of breakthrough moment. Um, like, you know, I worked in mobile for years and you know, I've built hundreds of apps primarily for iOS. And that device itself generated more revenue for, you know, people developing on the platform, you know, than Android ever will. Um, and it's it's because of that kind of app store and, you know, quality that they, that they brought that really, you know, enabled mobile to take off. And I see the Quest as being that same device, right? You've got the Oculus Quest store, you know, I've spent hundreds of dollars on games in there, you know, which is great for people in the VR space who are making these games. Because if you look at WebXR, like it's like, you know, VR chat and um, Janus VR and High Fidelity, and they're all like penniless and shutting down. But they but they love what they're doing, but they just can't get paid doing it. You know, I, I see the quest as being this opportunity for, you know, people like they did back in when the iPhone first came out as like making a living from making mobile games or mobile apps. That's going to be a huge thing for VR. It's like if you can if you can actually make a living from working in VR, great. Because at the moment, the only way to make a living from working in VR is to actually work at a company that wants to build something in VR, right? Like, and the company pays you. Whereas, you know, with, with the Oculus Quest Store, you could now be an indie game developer and you could basically create your own company and build your own games. And I, and I see that as a huge potential. But 
what's happening at the moment is you know all this WebXR and metaverse stuff it's happening on desktop um like cryptovoxes does have support for the quest but it's you know it's it's basically using the browser and the quest so it's it's not like natively built so you're not getting all the performance improvements and features and sdk updates that you would be able to leverage and i, and I think that's going to be a big challenge because you know facebook owned the device right and they're bringing out facebook horizons so they're going to own the virtual world on the device and you know that that's my biggest worry about the central and the crypto voxels it's like you know if you guys ever want to be like a VR world, you're going up against like, you know, like a trillion dollar company, you know, you just, you just can't win, right? Like they've got more resources, they own the device, you know, and they can, they can do all of this themselves. Like they don't really need web-based 3D. But I think if, if CryptoVoxels and Decentraland focus on the, the kind of desktop virtual world and building in world, I think building in world is probably the number one use case right like you you go in on your on your laptop and you build the world but if if you try to translate that into vr like you're not going to spend like six hours in vr building a world because you're you you know 20 minutes is kind of the max you can do in vr so that that's kind of where i'm at at the moment i'm like desktop vr like WebXR and vr device vr I think they're kind of two different things. Like the, the, there is an intersection, but like I'm, I'm a little bit worried that you know WebXR just will never generate any revenue on device. VR will be like the app store for Apple, you know, billion dollar a year kind of sales. You definitely know way more about this than I do, but you mentioned that you think the Oculus Quest is kind of the iPhone moment for the VR industry, and do you think it's do you think it's the iPhone or do you think it's something more along the lines of like the, the Palm Pilot or the BlackBerry where it's kind of the start of this whole trend towards smartphones? Because by saying that it's an iPhone, it's kind of implying that with the next, you know, two or three years, it's going to be the biggest thing ever. You know, everyone's going to be having, everyone's going to be talking about it. I haven't tried that Quest myself. Um, I've tried Rifts and, and other, other devices, but I have a buddy who has the Quest and he loves it, enjoys it. But he doesn't, he doesn't, he's not playing it every day and not using it every day. And it's kind of a, a cool thing that he has that he'll use every once in a while. It's not like the iPhone, which is like, you know, that thing you couldn't stop. I wouldn't say that it's, it's going to have the necessity that a phone has just because like you don't need VR to, you know, live, right? Like you, you need your phone to call an Uber, to order food, to, you know, talk to friends, to probably do a lot of work as well. So like the, the phone is a necessity, but I, I think more what I was pointing at was like the first ever time I spent money on VR was when I purchased games on the Oculus Quest. And the first time I ever spent money on apps on a mobile was when I bought apps on the Apple Store uh, for iPhone. And, and, and that's the key thing. It's the, it's the monetary, like the economics have, have started. Once the economics start, then you, you, can, you can actually make a profit. And then more and more people will move into that space. And, and, and that's kind of the iPhone moment that I'm talking about. It's not so much that we're going to need VR as much as we need our phones. It's, it's that companies can actually make a profit by you know, building games for VR, by building you know, apps for VR. That makes a lot more, a lot more sense in, in my mind because it's kind of people are obviously they want money and wherever there's more capital for people to 
earn, then that's usually where more things get built. So that makes a ton of sense. And also that goes kind of in my thinking with the metaverse as a whole, the metaverse for the users. You mentioned the metaverse for uh, companies building VR uh, platforms and games and whatnot, and how the economic activity in that realm is increasing. But I also think because of uh, NFTs and the blockchain, the users now are able to earn money fully digitally in like fully digital universes. I think that is kind of also the start of a uh, metaverse for the users in a sense. Yeah, and I think digital worlds are super important for the NFT space because what's the point owning all these NFTs if you can't put them up on your wall, right? You know, having a digital space to put your NFTs up like and that's the killer the killer app, right? Like and you know, if you look at crypto voxels, nearly every build is like somebody's like got this collection of digital artwork on the walls, right? Like it's it's just phenomenal. And I actually think it adds value. You know, it'd be really interesting to see if um you know if OpenSea and Spider Decks and Super Rare, you know, actually look at having you know a more official presence in these platforms because they're adding value to their platform being able to you know automatically pull in all of your open sea items into the build menu and crypto voxels might encourage people to actually buy from open sea right like you know and, and i think these these partnerships haven't really started yet but i i could see in the future that this digital land values you know digital items at a higher level because it has a way to to be placed and to be visible and it kind of becomes a status symbol like you know i've I've some of my josie bellini artwork in crypto voxels that i'm like super proud of right like i've got you know all four nfts that she's ever released you know they're my prized possession right? like I've, I've other stuff i've even got my own uh cryptomorphs <laughs> but like you know those particular nfts are just like you know these are super super rare, super amazing. Like, you know, the, some of the work that she's done is just phenomenal with augmented reality on her, on her, uh, paintings. And it's, it's just like being able to show that digitally, you know, it, it, it adds more value, I think to the, to the NFT. I a hundred percent agree. I think if we were just able to purchase these things and view them in each other's wallets, that would be, you know, that'd be a step forward. That'd be nice to be able to view it in people's wallets, but actually having a quote unquote physical place that we can go to and check out other people's uh, structures and, and kind of collections is really important. But also, I think um, you mentioned economic activity. And right now, as you pointed out, there's not really too much to do in these virtual worlds besides display your assets. I think that once we can start to figure out more functionality and people can start playing games within these worlds and also earning money by doing XYZ in these worlds, that would be huge. Like the more functionality you add, the more reasons there are for people to enter and stay and earn and play in those worlds. And I know there's some people that are, they're earning Ethereum by building for other people. Uh, Conlin, he built a color dispenser, which color is the native currency for crypto voxels. And you yourself, I think you built a tower back in the day where you could click on an NFT and it, it would, didn't it pop up to OpenSea and you could buy it directly in, in the crypto voxels world? Yeah, yeah. So I, I used the OpenSea API to get the list of top uh, D apps. So I'd pull in the top 10 D apps and then pull in like the, I think it was like maybe 36 most recent sales for each of the top 10 D apps. And then I'd display those on the tower. And um, so there was like 360 NFTs on the tower and they were ordered by like, you know, whoever had the most volume in the last seven days would be at like the top and then it would go down. And um, that, that was a really cool project. And yeah, I actually built it in CryptoVoxels first. 
and then um, I built it in in the central and then after that. And what was interesting was like, you know, when when I tweeted these out, like the the crypto voxels one got like I don't know, maybe like two and a half thousand impressions, but the Decentraland one got like three hundred thousand impressions. And what was really interesting was like, you know, it's it's pretty much the exact same thing, but the um, like the PR, the marketing, the research that Decentraland was able to do. You know, because he got like I don't know twenty or fifty million funding or something, you know, was just so much greater. Right? You know, fifty thousand followers on Twitter, um, versus CryptoVoxels, which was like relatively unknown, uh, which I kind of liked because you know, less people that know about it, the more the more land they can buy. Yeah, like it, it just didn't have that kind of uh, hype, and and I think that's something that that's really working in favor of CryptoVoxels because like there's there's no expectations. You know, like everything's just gravy. You know, like you're you know, you're looking at Ben Nolan, who's like basically you know working full time on it now, and he's probably like raised less than the Central Land giveaway in the last uh, hackathon. You know, he's able to have an up and running world ready to go that people can can visit, buy land, you know, relatively cheaply. So yeah, like you know, building that stuff you know, was awesome. And, you know, obviously it worked in both worlds. So, you know, scripting this sort of stuff worked, uh, which I really liked. What is something that you'd want to see in terms of functionality in these worlds? Because you mentioned scripting and that kind of opens the whole gamut of options for people to, with coding skills, to people to make games and all sorts of stuff. But what is some functionality that you'd like to see in these worlds that you think would really, you would love and also be attractive to bring more people in? Yeah, so like one of the projects I was working on with Decentraland was a bowling alley. I had it working with multiplayer physics. So you could go in, you could pick up the ball, you could throw it at the pins, you know, and the pins would all fly as per the physics. But then somebody watching you throw the ball would also see the ball getting thrown and, you know, the pins moving. And, you know, that for me was the kind of the kind of lighthouse application to show what's possible. But since then, you know, like client-side physics got disabled in the Decentraland SDK. So then I, you know, I was thinking, okay, I'll do um, a server-side physics engine over WebSocket. And then like, you know, WebSockets got removed from the Decentraland SDK. So then I'm like, okay, well, I guess we're not gonna we're not gonna build a bowling alley. So then, you know, I have to pare back my kind of plans and be like, okay, Let's just do like a HTTP API that allows players to interact, kind of turn-based. So like, you know, you're going from like, you know, fully interactive multiplayer games to shitty turn-based games. Um, And that's a big issue for me because when Facebook bring out Horizons, like, goddamn believe they're going to have multiplayer physics, right? That's just like, it's a de facto standard for any sort of decent game. So, you know, in CryptoVoxels, you know, we're, we're still pretty early days, but I, I would love to see the ability to add, you know, server-side physics engine to a scene, right? So that I could actually make a bowling game, for instance. So speaking of Facebook Horizons, what are your thoughts on NFT-based digital items versus just regular digital items? Do you think that NFTs have a huge advantage or huge disadvantage, or where do you kind of see uh, the future of, of both these ecosystems? I think the primary difference is that there's an open marketplace where you can buy and sell your items. If if Facebook opened up a you know Libra marketplace for for their items, 
then it kind of fulfills the same requirement, right? Like, or even if it was just a centralized system where you could buy and sell items, you know, using a credit card, you know, I think that would fulfill the the need as well. But a lot of these centralized systems, the, the big fear is that, you know, if they shut down the game, the items become worthless. Whereas with the NFT space, you know, if they shut down the game, somebody else can just run it. Do you know what I mean? But like, you know, that's in theory, like, you know, in practice, like nobody reopened crypto celebrities right when they shut down they just shut down like you know that contract is still there so somebody could go in and be like hey you know i'm gonna bring your celebrities back to life you know but like nobody wants to and and i think that's the challenge it's like decentralization also requires like you know somebody to care (laughs) (laughs) that's very true all right let's get into the uh, closing questions here what is your single favorite nft Probably my tune in from uh, Josie Bellini. It was like my first piece of crypto art that I ever bought. It's just a shit cool uh, NFT. You know, I, I have the print, I have the t shirt, I have the NFT. You know, I have it framed here in my apartment. And, you know, whenever somebody comes over, I show them like the Artivive app and it's like comes alive in augmented reality. And, you know, everybody's like, whoa. So, you know, th- like that, that was, that was like a, a really nice nft to get and uh, i think it was only like 20 people that bought the print got the nft so like there's only like 20 of those prints and 20 of those nfts in the world and i own one so su- su- super proud to own that you know and, and since then i've collected our other pieces as well so you know I, I think i have all four prints and nfts that she's released so far hoping to snag another one soon but yeah the competition's getting fierce <laughs> I love it. Big fan as well. All right. Next one is you have a billion dollars in funding and a huge technical team. What would you build for the non-fungible token space? I think I'd build my own marketplace. You know, OpenSea is amazing, right? Like it's not a trivial task to build what they've built, but I think they're kind of the first of many to come. Um, and I, I think there's a huge amount of uh, green space in that area. Like if, if you look at TD Ameritrade and, you know, Charles Schwab and all these different, you know, equity providers, like it's not like they're all like clamoring to get users, right? Like there's there's enough to go around from multiple players in the space. And I think, you know, OpenSea have a kind of a first mover's advantage here. You know, SpiderDex has just come out there recently. I know Mintbase is out as well. You know, and, and I can see this kind of growing and growing and growing. But I think what would be interesting would be to to kind of flip it on its head and to take it from like a product marketplace and turn it into like, you know, a market depth order book, right? Where you can like, you know, you can see crypto kitties on the order book and, you know, where the where the recent prices are. You could even have charting where you can see the you know, the price spikes when an NFT sells for higher or lower. So yeah, like just kind of data visualization of the NFT space would, would be cool. But obviously that's not going to spend a billion dollars. You know, m- maybe I'd also think about building my own crypto voxels uh, city. Like I know Ben is planning to open source the, the code after he, he mints all of uh, Origin City. So, you know, if, if he was to to open source the code then you know maybe i could release my own little virtual world with a with a spidey kind of tweak to it i love that that sounds that sounds exciting i hope i'm invited to that city going off that a bit you mentioned OpenSea, and there's multiple competitors in the traditional asset world which is like e-trade and schwab and whatever and, and they trade these publicly traded assets 
But if you look at eBay, which I guess is more similar to OpenSea because there are these collectibles and private assets that are traded by individuals. Do you think there's going to be multiple NFT venues to trade or do you think it's going to kind of be an eBay situation where everyone kind of goes to this one platform. Yeah, I definitely think there'd be multiple. You know, even with OpenSea, for instance, when I was minting the cryptomorphs, uh, I had to mint them one by one. Like for the Chain Guardian series, I, I minted 616. So I ended up like spending ages, like days, like minting NFTs. And now I know MintBase has like batch minting. Now there is APIs you can use, like with the Ethereum and Fura network, where you can actually you know, auto mint and stuff. Um, but that that's an extra bit of work. And I was just like, okay, I want to get this done. I'm just going to do it manually. But, you know, I, I can see the necessity growing, you know, as more and more projects come out. And it needs to be curated as well, right? Like, should all projects be visible or should they be curated like, you know, a certain standard kind of what Super Rare do? So, you know, that's why Super Rare is doing quite well is because it's, it's kind of a turnkey solution. Uh, whereas OpenSea is a more open source solution where, you know, it's still your contract, it's still your metadata, you know, you don't have to use the services, you know, you look at the additional app shutting down and all these people left with their mickeys in their hand, you know, th- those issues are, are something that kind of worry me, you know, and, and something I've been thinking about was a, a decentralized, like, you know, these wave decks where you can have an exchange that's basically running locally. Having a decentralized NFT platform, I think would be really cool. That is really cool. I, I haven't even thought of that. I wonder. I wonder. Uh, you should build that. <laughs> That's something you should do. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a lot to build because if it's decentralized, you don't make any money, right? <laughs> That's very true. Yeah, you're gonna have to figure out the monetization of that first, and then maybe you can approach building it. But all right, the next one is: What is something that you'd like to see happen, or something that you think needs to happen to the NFT ecosystem? I really think that we need like a really good game to adopt NFTs because, you know, you look at like Fortnite and Roblox and all these different games that have like millions of users and none of them are using NFTs. Like at the moment, what it is, it's like people are creating these NFTs and then building shitty projects. We need it to be the other way around. We need somebody to build an amazing, like a multi-billion or multi-million dollar investment in creating a game and then leverage NFTs. But at the moment, it's like everything is like leveraging NFTs and then they're building like, you know, a $10,000 game. You know, obviously Decentraland and CryptoVoxels are kind of like unicorns in the in the space because their games are really cool. Uh, I think Gods Unchained is quite interesting because, yeah, there was like, weren't they involved in like World of Warcraft or something? I forget. I, I don't know the exact details, but Gods Unchained is basically like a pretty wealthy game development firm you know and they i think they minted like over three and a half million four million uh, cards like it's it's not necessarily a great game like even look at my crypto heroes like it's it's probably the worst game ever played like but like it's hugely successful but i think what we need is we, we need like a hugely successful game first and then you know add on the nft that makes sense so speaking of that what do you think are the key factors for success for an nft project it's kind of the same argument, right? It's like, don't make an NFT first, right? You know, like an NFT is, is just like, you know, an add-on, right? Like successful first and then add NFT, right? Like there's, there's no point kind of pushing the, cor- uh, the cart before the horse, uh, if that makes sense. So do you think that a large game like 
or game developer like Fortnite or uh, I know it's not the I think it's Epic Games or Blizzard or something like that. Do you think that they would create a game with an NFT or do you think that the big NFT hit will come from some small guy? See, the challenge is, is that like if Fortnite like met all of their items like NFTs, they would have to like onboard all of their users to crypto. Uh, they need to create a wallet. They need to have their mnemonic or their private key. They need to, you know, make sure they store correctly. And then, you know, if somebody loses it, they've lost it forever, right? So that like that barrier to entry and risk of loss is probably it outweighs the benefit of using NFTs. Do you know what I mean? So you know, we we need to figure out a way. Like, and you know, it kind of defeats the purpose. But you essentially, you know, you have like a Coinbase exchange where. You know your NFTs are held. I think there's a project that that's actually working on it. I know I know Ben was looking into it, where basically you know it's a centralized system so that your user onboarding is easier. What that would do is means you know it opens up crypto voxels to a wider audience that don't necessarily need to know about crypto. And and I think that's kind of where we're at at the moment. It's like, would you want all of your Fortnite items in you know an Ethereum wallet? lose your key and then lose all your items like are you locked out of the game like you know what what's your kind of uh how, how do you get your stuff back if you fuck up i know axie infinity is working on building out something that you just mentioned it's kind of like a uh i think it's a centralized system that it doesn't involve crypto it can onboard regular quote-unquote regular people into the axie universe and they can play the game but they just don't have the I guess, added benefit of owning their assets directly. Um, but then eventually their idea is, hey, if they get interested in the game, then we can say, hey, if you guys want to own this and potentially earn some money, then why don't you follow these steps and you can onboard into the the real Axie Infinity universe. I think that's a crypto issue in general. It's not just the NFT space, you know, like a lot, a lot of people, including myself, keep money, you know, like funds on exchanges just because, you know, it's easier. Like I remember I... I had like a, tre- uh, I think it was a Ledger Nano S. You know, it was very early days in Ethereum. And I put like 200 Ethereum onto my Ledger Nano S. And then when I took it out, I forgot, I forgot the, the the passphrase or the, the pin I put on it. Like I was getting like serious cold sweats. Like I was like fucking panicking. You know, I went to test then if I could like reinitialize it with the mnemonic. And luckily that worked and I got access to my 200 Ethereum. But like that was just crazy like and I, I stopped using it after that because i'm like you know the security i get from putting on it actually increases the risk of loss yeah that situation just made me very stressed so thank you for that <laughs> all right the last question where do you see the world of nfts in three years three years is a pretty short time i guess three years maybe double the growth triple the growth i don't see it hockey sticking uh, in that time frame you know, I I think what we need to see is like ten percent of people in say America having a crypto wallet, right? And when we get to that point, that's twenty million crypto wallets in America. Well, like people attached to a like you know, obviously everybody's gonna have multiple wallets, but like let's say twenty million people have used crypto, and then of that twenty million. You know, 10% might have used NFTs. So now we've got 2 million users in the US. 
And that's still pretty small. Like if, you know, if you look at like, you know, a Facebook or, or TikTok and, and the way their user growth goes, like, you know, when, when they were, you know, growing at the early stages, you know, 2 million was a pretty small number of users. It was, it was only really when they hit the network effect at like, you know, 25 to 100 million that they actually took off to the billions of users that they have today. And, and I think that's, you know, where, we're, where we are on that kind of hype curve is like very, very early. Like we're, we're like pioneers, right? Like, like fucking, like n- none of my friends know what a non-fungible token is. You, you could walk down the street and ask every single person you see, what's a non-fungible token? And nobody's going to know. It's really funny you, you say that because, you know, we're in it every day. We're involved. We're, we're, you know, deeply, deeply involved pioneers, as you said. The growth in my mind from earlier this year to or earlier, sorry, 2019 till now, early 2020, it just has been mind boggling. But then really, when you compare it to something like mainstream, like TikTok or Facebook or something like that, it's absolutely nothing. And you're right about, I could walk down the street and ask everyone and no one would have any idea what a non-fungible token is. But I think a lot of progress can be made in, in three years. And I think that these assets are especially approachable versus cryptocurrencies because you don't need to like believe in the downfall of the dollar or digital gold or any of that. You just say, Hey, you like video games? These items can be yours, and you can maybe earn some money. And you know, simplify it. There is an interesting project that's kind of taking NFTs into the physical world, uh, Silicon Nexus. So they're doing like NFT vending machines. I think baseball cards were very successful because you saw them every time you went to the shop, right? You know, that's something that the NFT space doesn't have. Like, like I don't know anybody paying for advertising in the NFT space. Like, have you ever seen a Crypto Kitties advert? Right, no, that's true. I've never seen. Yeah, so so that that's kind of where we're at now. We're like we're under the radar. Like if if somebody like you know took the initiative to invest in like getting the word out there, you know, I think that could be huge. You know, may, maybe the NFT projects in general should create kind of you know like what Milk does. You know, Milk advertises generally not under a brand because you know there's so many different brands and they can just all combine their advertising revenue. To, to advertise stuff. So maybe, you know, something similar in the NFT space could happen where people are just trying to educate people about NFTs rather than, you know, hey, here's my, you know, NFT, go buy it. I would love to see that as well. So hopefully, uh, hopefully someone listening to this can make, make some, form some sort of group to, to do some uh, communal advertising. I think Gods and Chain probably have made enough money now from their from their four million NFT sale that they could that they could probably pump a, a few hundred grand into advertising. You know, maybe even just at conferences like you know Silicon Nexus could put a vending machine at a a conference, a crypto conference where people can kind of because it's much easier to convert crypto users to NFTs than it is non crypto users to NFTs because you gotta you gotta convince them about crypto first. And then once they're convinced about that, then you can convince them about NFTs. Yeah, no, that's very true. To close us out, I want to say thank you so much, Spidey Monkey, for coming on. And I want you to briefly talk about NFT crypto news. I'm going to link that in the description. And also I'm going to link Crypto Morse in the description. Yeah, if there's anything you want to say about NFT crypto news, kind of what it is, I would love to hear about it. It's actually funny. So I, I was at the Bitcoin conference there last year and I met with, uh, with Josie. She actually had some of her art there. You know, at the time we were talking about like, you know, nobody really knows about like crypto voxels or all these different NFT projects. And like, it doesn't make sense to create like, you know, a fan page for one project because nobody would ever know what that project was in the first place to ever find the page. So then, you know, I kind of came up with the idea. Well, what if we create like a an NFT wide 
crypto news website that would kind of help cross pollinate users from one project to another. So, you know, covering like the central land, crypto voxels, axes, uh, you know, all, all these different projects would kind of give it a central place where you could kind of discover other projects. See, so, yeah, I worked there like, I think it was like, like in a month, I built the website and then got it up and running. And, um, what I found was like the actual, the website was less uh, important than the Twitter account. So when I was looking at the statistics, I was like, the website's great and, you know, doing all these articles is great, but it's like a lot of work. And what, what seemed to actually be more valuable was to, you know, have a central place to kind of retweet or, or post information about NFT projects in general. And that, that's been working pretty well. So, you know, like I think it's at NFT crypto uh, Twitter handle. And, you know, I'll post a lot of kind of up to the date information about different projects. Uh, it, it seems to have pretty good reach. And, you know, I, I enjoy it. Like I like helping out the projects. Like it's, it's more of a labor of love than anything else. But yeah, you can check it out. I've got quite a few articles up there. It's open for people if they want to submit articles as well. So, you know, if you've got an NFT project you want to promote, I can set you up and you can you can write an article on nftcryptonews.com. Spidey Monkey, thank you so much for coming on. It's been great chatting with you. You'll have to come back on again in the coming months. Brilliant. Right, thanks a million, Andrew. Hey, everyone. Stay tuned for more episodes of the Zima Red podcast and subscribe to the Zima Red newsletter for more info on all things NFTs. Thanks so much for listening.